When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Different countries have very different approaches to regulating speech. Canada, the United States, Germany, South Africa, these are all examples of regulating speech, and especially hate speech, that differ in fundamental ways. But are these differences based on principles or on historical experience. Today, I speak with David Oppenheimer, who is a clinical professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley and the co-faculty director of the Pro Bono program, as well as the director of Berkeley's program in comparative equality and anti-discrimination law. He speaks about the way America regulates speech, the way other countries have approached this, and why this is all directly related to the question of race in our country. Welcome to Think About It. So I'm very happy to be here with Professor David Oppenheimer at the University of California School of Law. We're actually sitting here glancing down at the bay on a beautiful day. You have an enviable view from your office. (laughs) And you're a clinical professor of law and the co-faculty director of the Pro Bono Program and the director of the Berkeley Comparative Equality and Anti-Discrimination Law Study Group. And since you're here kind of overlooking the campus and you're in the law school, I'm curious sort of how you make sense of the last year, last year and a half, where national attention has been on Berkeley's campus for speech controversies. And I'm looking at your wall here also, and you have pictures of the civil rights movement of the Loving case, right here is a photograph, you know, one of the great cases where miscegenation was outlawed in our nation. So you have a historical understanding and your own involvement, your own academic and legal work in anti-discrimination and equality especially, gives you perhaps a perspective on what's at stake. So I'm kind of interested how you see the last year in relation to a longer history of what's happened at Berkeley and what's happened in the country. So speech controversies have been an important part of Berkeley's history. The free speech movement in the early 1960s 
came out of the civil rights movement, that came out of Berkeley students wanting to demonstrate and pass out leaflets in support of the civil rights movement and the administration uh, prohibiting that. And it really transformed Berkeley. There was really an earlier free speech movement here at Berkeley too, and that was the, the movement around the loyalty oath that Berkeley faculty were required to sign in the 1950s during the McCarthy period the resistance to the oath that tore the faculty apart. I mean, there were, there were many faculty, well, not many, but there were a handful of faculty who were fired because they would not sign a loyalty oath. So that's part of our background, too. But it's hard to define what happened in the past year and a half at Berkeley as simply a speech controversy because it has been a hate speech controversy and hate speech falls into a special category in the same way that the First Amendment does not attempt to prohibit extortion or assault even in the absence of battery or various forms of harassment, or defamation, where there is a First Amendment defense available in defamation cases, but it's a, it's a limited defense. Um, defamation, even though it's entirely speech, is nonetheless um, a civil wrong. Incitement to violence is both a civil and a criminal wrong. And in the same way, hate speech is in a special category, and it's an interesting category. Uh, I don't want to over-intellectualize it, but it's, it's interesting in part because different Western democracies have different approaches to how they deal with the problem of hate speech. In much of Western Europe, and in particular in Germany and in France, this is a very, very different debate because they have um, prohibited Holocaust denial. They have prohibited newspapers from glorifying the, uh, or other speakers. So they've prohibited newspapers and other speakers from glorifying the occupation. That's not quite the right word. The collaboration of the French with the Nazis during the Second World War. Um, to the extent that people have lost their jobs and in some cases been fined, I think in at least one case gone to prison for doing so under French law. They have criminalized hate speech to the extent that a famous uh, clothing designer a few years back was criminally charged and fined for a drunken anti-Semitic rant at a bar in the Marais district of Paris. Prohibitions on speech that are almost unimaginable in the US. And when I've discussed those differences with colleagues in Europe, the response has often been, you don't have the history we have. You don't have the experience of speech leading to a totalitarian government 
in which genocide was committed. And so you don't fear speech in the way that we do because you don't recognize the power of hate speech in the way that we do. Um, and I, I think that's right. I, I think that our experience has been different and we've made a, a decision to treat hate speech differently because we come from a different tradition. But what it ignores is that hate speech has actually been a very effective means of suppression and oppression in the United States, but of primarily of, of black Americans. And we as a society just don't seem to get riled up to care about the oppression of black Americans um, in the same way that we would um, of, of white Americans. And so if we look at slavery and Jim Crow and the continuing oppression of, of black Americans and other people of color in the US, it's um, easy to analogize to some of the horrors that we've seen in other parts of the world. But we tend not to do that. And we tend to pretty much ignore American Indians and their treatment and the genocide against American Indians. And so we, we get to a place where we say, well, yeah, we have a different value about hate speech than the Europeans because we have a different experience. And in part, I think that's true. And in part, I think that's our ignoring our own experience. What you're opening up is a really difficult, both intellectual and emotional effort, is to say that there are different histories in different countries. We don't have the same history. We don't have the history of a Holocaust or of apartheid, where South Africa, the Constitution, also regulates speech in different ways. We can leave aside Canada, which doesn't have the same history, but has a different approach to hate speech, probably closer to a European way of regulating certain types of speech. And I think what's important is to, and I would like to hear what you think about this, none of this means they are equivalences. These are very, very distinct historical events, phenomenon, and one, what we're talking about is not to say the Holocaust has anything to do or is like slavery or is like the genocide of Native Americans. They are incommensurate, incomparable events that have their own dimensions, they are catastrophes of a scale that shouldn't be compared, and nonetheless, America has its own history. So in some ways I think we're not saying there's something like the Holocaust. There's something like apartheid in this country. It's a separate, distinct thing, the historical event, but it doesn't influence or shape the current understanding in this country. And I would think the current understanding is the current jurisprudence, the current rulings, because there were different moments in our history, in this country's history, where we approached hate speech slightly differently. And there are moments in the history of the courts where they came closer to regulating something like group libel, in the early 50s and then sort of moved in a different direction. But in some ways I think it's important to note this doesn't mean there's an equivalence at all. It just means there are separate things, separate events, and countries respond differently. To go back to one thing, when you think in very general terms about the European approach, includes the Canadian approach, that there's a kind of sense 
hate speech isn't really good for society. It doesn't contribute. It doesn't add anything. Whereas in this country, you hear it actually makes us into a more tolerant society. That was Lee Bollinger's kind of argument after Skokie in the book, The Tolerant Society. He said it actually builds a kind of resilience in the public to be exposed to this or this kind of idea. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. As long as we drive these ideas out in the open, they'll be defeated. Then you end up in Berkeley in the last two years, and I think the students are saying, really? So exposure to sunlight over the last 50 or 100 years hasn't really defeated anything. It seems to be coming back and back and back again. <laughs> no argument has to be has been defeated. Racism is still around. So if you go to what's the assumption in this kind of European approach that this isn't really good to have around. This isn't this isn't really benefiting anybody in society, neither the targeted minorities nor anybody else. So first on the question of equivalence, I think you're absolutely right. I hope what I said doesn't suggest I'm creating such an equivalence, except for South African apartheid, hmm. where we really did have a system of apartheid in the United hmm. States, and we still are suffering from the consequences of that, not only in terms of the <coughs> continuing disadvantages that were caused by, not only the continuing disadvantages caused by racial discrimination in the past, but the continuing racial discrimination in our society. Mm -hmm. So I do think that looking at the South African approach makes sense in terms of better understanding our own. That said, it was easier to say of the Nazis marching in Skokie that it's better to let them march, even recognizing that it causes a certain amount of trauma to the people of Skokie. It was easier to say that when they were so marginalized. It was easier to say sunlight is the best disinfectant when extremist, hateful views were apparently held by a tiny percentage of our neighbors. It's harder with the resurgence of hateful speech and violence that we've seen in the past few years. Uh, some people say that the internet has unleashed this because people can anonymously express their hatred. Some people say that our president has unleashed this with his constant supportive statements of hateful speech and hateful conduct. Others say that he's just a symptom, not a cause. But something has changed. It's harder to make the argument that sunlight is the best disinfectant when the disease is getting worse. So this is giving a bit of historical context. So saying Skokie is 1977, correct? So there's a... If you say so. so <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a march by a few neo-Nazis in a little town, and there's national attention. This is national attention at that point means that it's on, in Time magazine, in the newspapers. President Carter actually gets kind of cornered about Skokie when it's unfolding and says, what do you think about this? And Carter says, as will every president after him until President Trump, I absolutely abhor and condemn these views, but I leave <coughs> the right to speak to the courts to decide. Mm -hmm. It's not a political decision, it's a legal decision. The courts will decide. He's even neutral whether the courts will decide they can or cannot march. And then every president after him until Trump will actually do something similar. George Bush, the elder, will 
take a position which is unusual for an American president and weigh in on a local race in Louisiana and say, David Duke should not be a politician in this country. We abhor these views. He takes a real position on these. And I mm -hmm. think there used to be a kind of tradition or say a practice of defending absolute speech rights that's immediately paired with saying, but this is the strongest condemnation of the point of view being articulated here. I think what you're saying, so now we live in a world where you have the internet, you have President Trump probably equivocating or hesitating or creating equivalencies and saying there's good people on all sides, implying maybe there's something to, worth listening to on the other side. So this has changed. It sounds pessimistic in a way. It sounds like, oh, we're in, a, we're in a kind of in a bad place in this country. Is there, and this is what you said, is it a resurgence or has the internet just exposed what's always been around that people didn't want to know about? I think a lot of people also knew about it. I think targeted minorities were not in any way surprised necessarily by this resurgence, right? Yeah, but what's changed is what's become acceptable in terms yeah. of public discourse. Yeah. And that things that maybe people were saying in private, uh, but they wouldn't say in public, or maybe they were just thinking them in private, are suddenly part of the national debate. Yeah. You know, the president has suggested in a variety of ways that we should look at black people as genetically inferior and therefore not entitled to the same rights and privileges as white people, and has suggested that people from Mexico shouldn't be eligible to be citizens because they're inferior, inferior beings, not quite human beings. Right. I don't think that's an exaggeration, although it's an interpretation. It's simply beyond what anyone could say in public discourse without people from across the political spectrum condemning until recently. Can I link this, this implication that some people are not innately, inherently equal to other people, which really is anathema to America in a certain way. And I'm kind of curious what you think, because your work has been on equality law and anti-discrimination law. The country is committed to equality and has gone through a very difficult, lengthy process, including a war and over 100 years of legislation and policy making and <coughs> social kind of changes to think that equality is one of the foundational assumptions. And I'm always really interested in how to make sense of this. What you, I think, really helpfully say, they're not maybe speech debates, they're really about hate speech, that they are linked more fundamentally to equality than to offended feelings and hurt sensitivities and you know coddle students who can't handle a robust debate. I think they're about this other aspect that, that <coughs> when people are being demeaned, it's not they're being you know, insulted with some bad words, but yeah. their inherent humanity is being questioned, which used to be is not just an inappropriate, it's a non-starter in America. This is not negotiable. This is an assumption we all make. I think you're right. I think that there has been a long, long history of our treating people as the other and of not recognizing their humanity uh, or their right to equality. And if you look at the history of immigration policy, for example, what it's been driven by for well over a hundred years 
is just abject racism. If you look at the arguments that were being made in the 19-teens, just 100 years ago, you could substitute them for the arguments being made today. And you'd have to change the groups because in 1915 or 1920, the arguments were against Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans, Jews and Catholics. They were described as being people who couldn't be assimilated, as uh, people whose values were so different than other Americans that they could never be Americans, that they would mongrelize the American race. And these arguments were being made by people of great substance. I mean, one of the great debates was between the outgoing and incoming presidents of Harvard University. Charles Eliot, the transformative president of Harvard from the 1867 to 1907, maybe. Hard to there. believe a president would last for 40-some years. At yes, yeah. well, it was remarkable. And he completely transformed Harvard and completely transformed yeah. American higher education. And, by the way, was very committed to Harvard's belief in and support for diversity, um, including racial and class and gender and uh, religious diversity. And the, the arguments that you hear that diversity at Harvard is something that came in the 1920s with the Jewish quota is just absolutely wrong. It's, it is historically a false claim. But he was replaced at Harvard by the head of the, uh, the leading voice of the anti-immigration movement. And the two of them went head to head over a period of about a decade over the, the question of immigration, with Eliot calling for wide open immigration and fighting against the Jewish quota at Harvard when it was instituted. And his successor... Which, which I would note, we'll be hearing a lot about this, this quota in the coming months and years with the lawsuit against Harvard's admission policies. And this quota is strongly disputed by lots of people who still don't believe it existed, still don't believe it was ever implemented, still believe there's no such thing as a quota. And can you just say what this quota refers to? Sure. Well, my understanding of history, and I wasn't aware of, uh, of a denial that there'd ever been a... Uh, a Jewish quota. My understanding of the history is that, um, and I'm, 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 I'm giving you the the parts of robust debate that exist sure. <laughs> that people are disputing yeah. proven facts. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, I'd like I'd like to see those papers. I'm trying to remember. I'm struggling to remember the name of the president who succeeded Charles Eliot. He went to the faculty and said, "We're admitting too many Jewish students, and it's causing great harm." to the university. And the problem is not, he said, that these are not good students, but that when we reach a certain tipping point, non-Jewish students will no longer want to come here. He said he analogized to what happened to resort hotels where they had a policy of not allowing Jews to stay there. And then over time they relaxed the policy and as soon as a certain number of Jews would start staying at the hotel, he claimed, Gentiles would stop visiting the hotel. And so he said that he feared the same thing would happen at Harvard. There was a very divided faculty, and there were a series of votes and a series of manipulations, and what he finally got was authority from the faculty 
to allow the admission staff to consider a variety of factors that had not been part of the admissions process and that was understood to include a 20% quota on Jews and they became very adept at identifying students as, as being Jewish. Of course you saw during the same period Jewish families in, in the Northeast changing their names to try to escape anti-Semitism. So what you're saying is that this question of a definition of who counts as American is is that a variation? And there we have the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is in effect for, I think, decades and decades and decades. 1882, right. I believe, till the you know 1947 or something, when they start admitting something like a hundred people from Asia a year, which is inconceivable in terms of the numbers today. But so there's an there's an attempt to define who counts as American and who does not count as American. I'm a proud naturalized citizen. I'm always a bit stumped by these discussions because I. You know, when you come to this country and you, you know, you try to make your way and then you become naturalized, it's, it's quite a moving moment, actually. You are quite aware that most people who live around you were made citizens or their ancestors were turned into citizens at some point, but most people are not Native Americans, right. the great majority. Somehow, so this debate always seems a bit intellectually strange to me when people define themselves as true Americans and the other ones are, you know, those other groups the Jews, the Asians, the Italians, the Catholics are not true Americans. Well, you know, <laughs> it's... Intellectually, sure. how do you maintain that? But, but really, it's about white power and white privilege. Hmm. And, you know, we saw the same thing happen in Australia. I was, a few weeks ago, I was in Melbourne, and I visited their immigration museum there, which is a fascinating museum. Yes. And there was a long period of time after the Second World War where the Australian government had a whites-only immigration policy in order to keep Australia white. And there were lots of Asians and, and, and people from Oceania who wanted to emigrate to Australia, and Australia needed immigrants, and yet their policies forbade those people from coming. We have, in many ways, had, until the 1960s, our own equivalent of a whites-only immigration policy, except for those who were brought here as slaves, which of course isn't immigration. It's a form of migration, but only in that people were, were forced to come here. And if we come to the 1960s, so there's an idea in America that white Americans are maintaining this belief, a fantasy, that they're the true Americans, everybody else is an outsider, sort of maintains a secondary status. Then universities are transformed. There's a civil rights movement happening, not just outside. As you said, it's informing debates on the campus of the University of California. Mario Savio is a freedom writer registering black voters in the South, and then comes to Berkeley and presumably says, I don't want to live in nice, pretty Berkeley here and keep that battle outside. It should be part of the university's engagement. And the other thing you have is, for the first time, insignificant numbers, minorities are admitted to universities, and women are admitted to many elite institutions. So the big Ivies are starting to admit or affiliate with women's colleges, Barnard, Radcliffe, etc., in the 60s. And I think this is a really critical moment to what's happening in universities, that uh, universities which I always consider are a model for society, you suddenly have people starting to study together. Mm -hmm. Like the military had been integrated, 
very difficult processes before that, and now you're integrating universities really in a meaningful way for the first time. Meaningful meaning larger numbers and just a handful of students here and there. Right. And so you have the free speech movement at the same time, which originates, as you alluded to earlier, the, the Berkeley free speech movement is driven by principles of equality, of racial justice, and racial equality. And I'm kind of curious how you have the free speech movement originate here in the 1960s, and then you have the last few years people coming to this campus to inherit the mantle of free speech, claim they speak on behalf of the First Amendment, but somehow they have really seem to go directly against the values of the people who originated that movement. Well, I think that's right. There's a continuum, and you have to recognize that. There are people who have conservative, and very conservative, and even hateful views, who nonetheless deport themselves in a way that I think it is appropriate for the university to help provide them an opportunity to speak to our students and other members of our community. And even though most of us may disagree with them, this should be a place where they can speak and be heard. And then you have people who really want to come here in order to disrupt the institution because they don't believe in our values, including our values of free speech, who would like to see us become a place in which violence is endemic, in which minority group members are unwelcome or feel endangered, are endangered, to be a place where we spend most of our money not on libraries and on faculty and staff, but on police protection. There are people who would like to destroy the university by making it a place of unmitigated violence in which all of our resources are aimed simply at protecting life. I don't think they have a right to do that, either under the First Amendment or any under any social contract. And I want to be careful. I think we need to be careful to distinguish them from those whose views we don't like, but who's nonetheless who have a viewpoint and who have a wish to deliver what is essentially political speech. While we can certainly regulate the time, place, and manner in which they do so, I think it's a mistake to say they're not welcome here. So, so you're putting your finger on this, the, the very difficult issue where people would say, well, where do you draw a line? And who are you to draw the line? Shouldn't the line be something that, since we're all fallible, you may draw the line today like this? Professor Oppenheimer says these people are within the pale of discussion, but this one person here is beyond the pale mm -hmm. for the reasons you just articulated. When you walk into this building right here, Wolf Hall, the, the law school, there's a sign on the door that says, 
Um, no loud noise, no deliberate disruption. Anybody who disrupts a classroom discussion will immediately be expelled and escorted out of the building. There are guidelines when you enter the building that you have to adhere to. That's so correct. you're saying the university has larger guidelines that are sort of, there's a community of robust debate, difficult exchange with views that we strongly disagree with, but if it crosses a line into something else. And what if someone were to say, well, who are you to decide that shouldn't we just let it all run its course, see what happens, the morning after wake up and see, well, this didn't go so well, so we spend, you know, maybe 700000 or more dollars we could have spent on other programs. But it really wasn't up to us to decide in advance. I don't understand why we as a community, which is essentially the faculty, but taking account of our students and our staff. The faculty are charged with the um, administration of the university. We make decisions all the time about what we teach and what we don't teach, both the courses we teach and the way in which we teach them. We make decisions all the time about who we uh, hire to join our faculty uh, and who we don't. We make decisions all the time about who we admit as students. All of these are hard decisions. I spent a few years as the chair of the admissions committee, and one of the things that I, I found myself saying to incoming students is, all of the students, all of you who are here, were easy choices. You, were all, you all represent the easy decisions. We read your files and we said, we want them to be part of this institution because of the the enormous talent they bring and the experiences they bring and, and their success in, in many endeavors, of, of, of their success in college and their success in, in the world. The hard decisions were the students, the applicants who we said no to, who we would have loved to have admitted as well, but we just didn't have room for everyone. So, and tenure votes, tenure votes can be excruciatingly <laughs> painful, difficult decisions. And often include actually very strong disagreement and people even in some cases will be tenured who and you disagree with just about everything they say but you respect the love their quality of scholarship and research etc sure yeah and you know when we have colleagues uh, who say things offer legal opinions which we you know with which many of us disagree my colleague John Yu who was the reason that we had to post those signs about disrupting classes. Because uh, after he returned here from working in the Bush administration, where he had written a legal memo that was understood to give the legal foundation for the authorization of waterboarding and other forms of torture, there were many students, there were some faculty, there were many outsiders who felt that he should be drummed out of the university. And you know, the dean at the time, Chris Edley, who I suspect disagreed very much with the legal conclusions that John had reached, said that, you know, we're not in the business of taking tenure away from somebody because we disagree with them or their politics or their view of the world or their legal opinions. And that's, uh, that's I think, a very good articulation of what free speech means within a university. So there seems to be a no lack of robust debate, strong disagreement, 
And then on the outside of academia, nonetheless, there's this idea that there's a lack of viewpoint diversity. Universities are run by tenured radicals or too many liberals yeah, that right. these <laughs> that conservative students are being marginalized. They can't really express their views. And under this argument, under the auspices of this argument, then you have people coming in who, as you would say, I think you're right, they have actually not just an interest in casting aspersions on the university. They actually want to fundamentally undermine the authority of the university to decide what merits debate. I think this is what becomes very tricky. So in the name of opening up more debate, what they actually want to say, we want to have the authority. We want to take that away from the faculty, from the university. It shouldn't be Berkeley faculty to decide what is important or what is a fact. It should be me. Mm -hmm. And I was always struck by when you looked at it from the outside to have outside people programming events at the university and you thought the university wouldn't hand it to, you know, the nice man who runs the coffee shop across the street would like to run the politics department. Mm -hmm. If he's really qualified, fantastic. Otherwise, <laughs> he wouldn't even get an invitation. What's being negotiated seems to be a larger kind of question of what constitutes the truth or who is the arbiter of the truth in our society. And I think this is linked to what, what we're going through in the country as a whole that established truths are being disputed, known facts are being disputed, expertise is being dismissed as elitist. So how does the university get this right again? Because it seemed to me that we've lived through a year and a half where people just responded for a while and saying, well, the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. As if that answered this question, which right. I'm not positive. I think what we've seen, it doesn't fully answer it. I think there's been incredibly smart work on it, but I think just saying the First Amendment does not answer this more difficult question of what is the role of the university in society? So, again, I think that we have to make, we have to have time, place, and manner restrictions where outsiders can come and address us. Uh, we want to welcome as many different points of view as possible. That's part of the strength of the university. The suggestion, by the way, that the university is run by some kind of liberal cabal <laughs> It's, it's just not so, and it, it may be that um, university faculties are to the left of the mainstream in America to some extent, although I think that moderate and conservative voices are well represented, and I also think it may reflect who wants to be a university professor, you know, among those who have earned the terminal degree, the, uh, typically the PhD, although sometimes in professional schools like this it's the, it's the JD, the Juris Doctor, or in a medical school, the MD, but people who have earned that degree and then have options in terms of what they want to do with their lives. And I think that the people who are attracted to an academic life are more likely to be moderate to liberal than to be conservative. And, and similarly, uh, when I look at my, my students and, and where they want to go, what they want to do, uh, my conserv conservative students, and we have a, a fair number of conservative students at Berkeley, and uh, you know, we have a robust federalist society here, and most of them want to practice law, at least initially, in private law firms, which is understandable. So it's a a wonderful job, pays a lot of money. They'll, they'll walk out the door and start at it's either 160 or 180 thousand dollars a year now. And, uh, 
that's pretty impressive. More than most faculty in the humanities will make. That, that's right. <laughs> By contrast, most of my students who identify themselves as liberals or progressives, uh, many of them will also go to those firms, but many of them uh, say, no, what I really want to do is work for a public interest organization, or I really want to work in government, or I really want to work in public policy, uh, knowing that uh, at best their hope is to make uh, 60000 a year coming out of school. Now, that's not bad, but it does reflect sort of what's important to those students in terms of the career they want, and many more students who would describe themselves as liberals or progressives, I find them in my office saying, I really want an academic career, and how do I do that? And I have conservative students who come and say, I really want an academic career, and, and I'm happy to mentor them. But they're a smaller, a smaller percentage, I think. I find it um, striking that the university is kind of in the crosshairs of sort of public debates or in the spotlight while most university professors actually do their jobs, feel they have very little resonance in the larger public. And mm -hmm. then somehow through these speech controversies, they're yanked into a kind of public forum where they have to explain what the university is, which really hasn't enjoyed a great reputation. And I think over the last couple decades, there's a systematic unfunding of higher education. There's a pretty great suspicion whether education is worth it. I think that's very reasonable, especially by parents who are spending a fortune to send their children to college and don't have guarantees that there will be enough employment, whether those skills are really what they need today. So I think there's a larger strange disconnect between the university having become criticized as either irrelevant, overpriced, out of touch with reality, and then suddenly what happens in the university is incredibly important for America. Because mm -hmm. how the debate has been waged is if we were to restrict any speaker from a campus of a public institution such as Berkeley, it'll be the end of our constitutional rights and yeah. liberties. It goes back to our initial discussion about these comparative perspectives. In other countries, you regulate hate speech because you think that protects democracy. Here, if you regulate hate speech, you're going to sacrifice democracy. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the turning point for the University of California, I think, was really Ronald Reagan's race for governor in 1966. He ran against the university and won. In what sense did he run against the well, idea he, of the university? Well, he said, you know, his campaign was focused on, it was focused on a couple of things. It was focused on making sure that we didn't have a Fair Housing Act in California so that white people could have the right to exclude blacks from their neighborhoods and on the and an attacks on the free speech movement and thus on the University of California. To me it's always been striking in a way that because the one thing that America really sort of has as a the great export item, the great envy of the world are its universities. And foremost yeah. among them it's public public institutions such as Berkeley, Michigan, Texas, those big public institutions, University of Massachusetts, great flagships innovators, incubators of research. So you would think everything that's good about a country is, sort of, is driven by the university. So what did he say? What is bad about having a university in the state of California? What's the, arg what's the Reagan argument that still resonates today, I think? That we're, you know, the, the Reagan argument is there are a bunch of elites who don't know what's good for society and who are telling us what's good and we know better. And behind it all was race and racism, hmm. you know, and this fear that, you know, that California and America would lose its whiteness. 
And in some ways, to go back to something we said earlier, so this shifting sort of, of these kind of values of who is American or these kind of ideas, normative ideas of who, who counts as American. I was actually enrolled at the University of California as a freshman in 87, which, if I'm correct, was the first time there was no white majority. Civilization still exists, mm -hmm. but there was a discussion. This is the end of something when there were no more 51% white students because there were so many different groups, and so there were 49% white students at the University of California. It was a big talking point. It manifested itself in kind of discussions about teaching assistants who didn't speak proper English. There was a kind of racist sort of idea. You don't want to have a teaching assistant who's not a real American kind of thing. But then it sort of seemed to have played its course, and now the University of California is is not sufficiently diverse, but a campus that doesn't have one majority anymore. Do you think this whole discussion about the demographic shifts in our country, how are they informing these debates about equality, about who, who belongs, who is an American, who isn't an American? Yeah, well, I think it's what's driving the right. And I think that's why you see such a focus on immigration policy and trying to denaturalize naturalized citizens and trying to reduce the number of people coming from outside the United States to emigrate here, you know, with the exception, I think the president said, of Norwegians, we need more Norwegians. And um, the First Lady's family, I presume, so Melania, right. Melania Trump's family yes. actually also yeah. became citizens recently, they right. celebrated their chain migration. <laughs> we are becoming a country in which people have lots of different racial and ethnic identities. To some extent, uh, a, a sense of self-identity, and to some extent, a sense of identity imposed by others. And to those white Americans for whom the last generation has been a series of economic disappointments, it's easy to blame minorities for those shifts. Now that's just a continuation of what's always been true. You know, white racism against the other, against, against blacks, against immigrants. There's a wonderful book called uh, How the Irish Became White that, among other things, talks about how when Irish Catholic immigrants started coming to the United States, they were not viewed as white people. And, and that was partly because, the, because many of them felt a sense of solidarity with black people in the South who were just on the verge of a, of a civil war that liberated them from slavery. But that, I think that's what's driving the right. And you, know, you hear, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. This is the fundamental motivation. And, you know, and our president shares it and drives it, both of those things. So when a position, in, when a person of such influence and with such power, namely the president, shares those views. I think what becomes very difficult for university leaders and faculty is when those views are articulated, that they say, we strongly disagree with those views. I think there's, what has happened is once the president failed to say, I condemn these views while protecting the right to speak, university leaders are caught suddenly short when their students are saying, I don't believe you're just supporting an abstract First Amendment principle or an abstract right to speech that's viewpoint neutral. I think you actually want to let us know what you really think, or you want to just every once in a while have a racist speaker on campus so we kind of know our place. 
And what's become very difficult, I think, for everybody else is to insist we are committed to equality. We are committed to your being here on equal terms. But we're nonetheless going to have the speaker here who says the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I think it creates a challenge. And I think what's been hard to assimilate for in the American public is that moral leadership is missing. And moral leadership is not an empty, meaningless thing. It's a very, very critical thing. Because you could think, well, who cares what the president says as long as we have the courts and we have you know, equality. Lawyers like you defending those things is going to work out. And I think the students are saying, I don't trust you anymore. Mm -hmm. Anybody in authority, I don't trust you because you may have the same point of view. And you're just slipping it in under this First Amendment absolutism. Well, this is why it's important when we do invite speakers whose views are odious, but who nonetheless, it makes sense to invite them, that the faculty and the president and the administration have to make it clear that we find these views odious, that we personally find them odious, that they don't represent, uh, that the speaker certainly doesn't represent the university or the views of the university or the views of individuals within the university except those who, who decide to affirm that those are their views. But there are still lots of circumstances in which the interest of wide-ranging debate means that they should be permitted to speak. A group of students comes to me and says, <coughs> We know you've had a number of speakers come and talk about comparative equality and how different societies address the problem of inequality. And there's, there's someone we'd like to come to have as part of that series. And I vet that person, and it's somebody whose views I find odious, but, but it's somebody who I don't think is coming with the hope of starting a riot, but rather would like an opportunity to talk with students about his or her, their views, and discuss, discuss their work, then I want to figure out a way to make that happen. But I also want to make it clear to my students that these are not my views. And, and I do want to pay some attention to students who feel that the expression of those views in their place makes them feel unwelcome there. I think that's a meaningful concern and I don't think we should just ignore it or say they're being oversensitive. I don't think that's true. To put a little emphasis on this final, this last point you just made, yeah. that you don't want them to just think, oh, you're not so welcome today in this audience or you feel a little put out or something like that or a little offended. Since you've worked so much on kind of anti-discrimination and equality law and you've contributed to work that's been going on for 30 years, at least 30 years sort of in where, where the equality guarantee is paramount and you have a speaker coming in who says, let's say I'll give you an extreme example as a thought experiment. So you have a producer of violent pornography who wants to do a screening on campus and you have a group of people saying this is so offensive to us in our equality Mm -hmm. participation in the room that actually we cannot be in the same room while this movie is being screened because we feel for all sorts of arguments that have been made for a long time we're being objectified in this way etc so how do you balance that out and is, I'm just asking more for as a lay person not legal expert 
this has been sort of McKinnon's argument for a long time. Where I think her stroke of genius was to put equality in connection. She says they are in tension. I'm not sure whether they aren't interdependent. So in some ways, how do you respond to students who are saying, my quality guarantees at this university are not respected when someone comes in, and I'll give you an example of someone screening a stream movie, because it's mm -hmm. actually easier than someone saying a sentence or something like that. Yeah. So, one, I want to be sure that our students know what it is that's going to be screened so that they don't inadvertently attend. I want to be, you know, if they, if they attend, I want it to be an act of intention on their part. Two, I want to create a forum in which those who object can be heard. And to make sure that the screening doesn't go unrebutted. But with those restrictions, and then with the obvious restrictions, you know, you can't say, oh, well, I see you have a class at 10 a.m. In, in room 100 on Tuesdays, but I've decided I want to use that space to screen a violent video, so I'm taking it. You know, that, and, and this is when we, you know, time, place, and matter, you know. And that there are students who are asking for this. In other words, it's not just that an outsider contacts me. And that would say, students asking for it, and then what you say, what is the educational benefit or purpose? Mm -hmm. Because there are lots of things in the world that we can watch and screen and talk about, but they, it would be connected, when you say rebuttal, to an educational purpose. That's we right. would learn something from the screening, because I teach photography, so I teach documentary and witnessing photography. So there are a pretty good number of photographies of atrocities and actually videos even that we have, historical documents. And I actually don't put those up, which also has changed. They used to be tiny little photographs, mm -hmm. half an inch by two inches, one copy in a museum that some, someone smuggled out that you could look at once. And now they're on a six by eight foot PowerPoint and you can put them up for an hour and a half mm -hmm. and your class has to look at them. Yeah. This does not actually have a good educational outcome. Right. It silences people. Mm -hmm. It positions them in relation to the image in the wrong ways. And in some ways, I think what you're saying is you would need a kind of educational framing of this. And the framing is critical. And if there's no framing, if someone just comes in and says, I'm going to screen this movie to shock the audience, you lose the entire purpose of what, this, of what the educational point is. I think that's right. And that's... Yeah. And look, there's certainly... I assume if you teach a course on documentary film that you include, I'm blanking on the name of the film, but the film that was done in part at the 1936 Olympics by the German oh, filmmaker. Yeah, Olympiad or Triumph of the Will. Leni Riefenstahl, right. Triumph of the Will, the Olympiad, the two, the documentary on the Olympics, Olympi which yeah. I actually, which my colleagues, A. Alperetz and Shelley Rice, have forced me to watch because I never wanted to see them. Mm -hmm. And, but you frame but, it in a proper way and say, what is she doing, which has led to the aesthetics of Calvin Klein ads today, and we all live with those images today. That's right, <laughs> yeah. There's a wonderful play about her. Or Lady Riefenstahl, yeah. really, really. Yeah, that I, I saw last year uh, here in Berkeley. Um, so, yeah, there's... It's, it's a there, framing question, I think. And what you're is. saying is that the university gives up that framing function then it's sort of caught in having just staged something that doesn't yeah. that runs against its own values. Then we're just a then we're just a, a place to show offensive films. Right. 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 
I was going uh, to which ask. there are now plenty of places, by the way. You know, it's not that there's no access. There's the internet, yeah. There, which, that's right. And, and despite the recent moves by the private companies that control the internet, control content on the internet, I don't think we're at any risk that hate speech is going to disappear from the internet. Right, and the question, that's a, that's a, that's a, a good place to end. What would happen if hate speech were less available in this country? Would we think it would be really a loss for the country or for the, for the public? Well, okay, so <laughs> there are really two parts to that question. Yeah. Because on the one hand, if hate speech disappears because we've suppressed it and driven it underground, then it might be a problem because it's festering. It's, it hasn't disappeared because people have decided that it's antisocial and it's incivil and it's, it's not a way for us to communicate, but rather because they're, they're being punished if they promulgate it. That might be a bad thing. On the other hand, if hate speech disappears because we become a less, less hateful place, right. this of course is a wonderful thing. This is a, a great question for <laughs> a professor in a law school who you're also interested in sort of, you know, larger questions of social equality. Because the first part is, can the law regulate society in ways that don't backfire and sort of just keep people from doing bad things, but they don't really want to stop doing bad things? Or mm -hmm. do we wait for society to change, and then we don't need the law anymore? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in some ways, as a, some people say we need the law to move society, and we want to balance out, but also letting society move without putting a punitive kind of law on it. Yeah. And both, both of those things are correct. <laughs> and intention. Yeah. So I want to thank you, David Oppenheimer, at the University of California at Berkeley, the law school, for this fascinating conversation. I hope to have you back on the podcast at some point. Well, thank you. It was, it was really interesting to meet you and, and to read some of your work and have this discussion with you. And so thanks for joining the podcast today. Okay. You're very welcome.